Hi, everyone. You're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zassel. I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So uh, this week, we have a, a special podcast where we are going and dialing into our Investment Summit uh, 2023. And this was held on the 9th and 10th of January uh, earlier this year. And so we thought that it would be very interesting to listen in to some of the key uh, speeches from that summit uh, for your uh, interest. So uh, the first uh, uh, presentation we have today is uh, Dan Clifton from Strategis. Uh, he's obviously been on the podcast a number of times uh, and he had some very insightful comments to make about the uh, upcoming uh, political agenda in the United States and of course uh, a little dive into geopolitics. So let's listen in. Forty Dan is hosting his own conference um, in person uh, tomorrow, uh, so he couldn't be here in person, but hopefully we'll get him back uh, over the next few days. And you can see him behind me already, uh, <laughs> uh, ready to go. So Dan, uh, over to you. So what I want to do today is walk you through some of the key issues that we see happening, uh, not just on the debt ceiling, but uh, through the general policy framework and uh, be able to walk through kind of how you, do, you can observe these issues as we go through the course of the year. I would say that last year when we did this virtually, you know, our big points were that fiscal and monetary policy was going to tighten, geopolitical risks were going up, and that the policy framework was shifting across, uh, across what we've normally been used to, and that largely played out. Uh, the question for this year is how policy responds to that changing framework. How does the Fed deal with monetary policy? How does Congress deal with the debt ceiling and a rising net interest cost? And how does the Western world deal with the challenge to a multipolar world? I don't know if they're going to put up some slides. I always figure pictures are better than a thousand words. But basically, I believe that the COVID aftershocks are leading to a once in 40, a once in 40 year policy shift, both from a policy perspective and how investors are going to be able to respond to this. Let me start by just showing you the first slide, which are some scenes from over the weekend. I've been in politics for 25 years. If you turn to the next slide, I've been in politics for 25 years. Uh, I've watched U.S. politics for probably 30, 32 years. Uh, Friday was something to really behold. And these are two photos that were captured about 1130 on Friday night uh, as the Republicans were trying to pick uh, a Speaker of the House of Representatives. It looked more like a, a, a 1700s or a, uh, a less developed world rather than the United States. And by the way, this is intra-party fighting. This is not even Republican and Democrats. And we'll explain why this is happening in just a few minutes. Let's get back to our framework though, if we look at the next slide, is that we believe that this political volatility that is emanating from Washington uh, is really coming from economic volatility. This is a chart that I've shown in the past here at the EFG conference. And it's the trend growth rate of U.S. GDP and the actual growth rate of GDP. And what this chart shows is that on average, the U.S. has been growing by about 3% per year after inflation. Sometimes we were a little bit below that. Sometimes we were a little bit above it. But we always centered around that 3% growth rate right up until the financial crisis in 2008. Starting in 2008, the U.S. transitioned from a 3% to a 2% growth rate and has largely stayed there for the last 14 or 15 years. And you say, well, Dan, what's the difference between three and two? It's pretty big. It's about $4.4 trillion of less 
economic growth in America. We do this globally. It's about $11 trillion. And for the average American household, it's about $40,000 less of income that that household would have accumulated over this period of time. And we believe that this lower standard of living is translating into higher political volatility. If we look at the next slide, that kind of comes to the conclusion of why this is happening. We've had nine federal elections since the financial crisis, and the voters of this country have removed the party in power in eight of those nine elections. So we've had all Republican, we've had all Democrat, we've mixed it up. We even rolled the dice with Trump in 2016, and none of these combinations have been able to get economic growth higher. What is happening now is not only are you having this kind of political volatility with uh, between the parties, but you're now having it within the parties and most notably within the Republican Party, where you're really having a battle for the soul of those two parties. And so you think about if you're a business or you think about if you're an investor, is that one year somebody's coming in and cutting taxes, two or four years later, the next party's trying to raise taxes or doing healthcare reform. And so we haven't been able to get the sustainability of policy. Uh, over half of S&P 500 companies today on their 10K are saying that Washington policy is the biggest risk to their business. At the beginning of the financial crisis, that was less than a quarter of the company. So a pretty big change in the political volatility and policy uncertainty. If we look at the next slide, this was all happening before COVID. And then COVID happened. And, and I would argue that COVID created what I would call four policy, uh, four policy uh, transformational events. Each one of these events are uh, have very big changes in public policy. But when you have all four of these events together, it leads to pretty big tail risk. What were those four events that happened in 2020? We had a recession. We had a pandemic. We had mass protests. And we had a new president. And so just to give you an example what if Trump had won re-election rather than Joe Biden? The policy issues that we'd be discussing today would be very different uh, under a Trump than a Biden presidency. What happens if we didn't have COVID? Obviously, our lives have changed dramatically from that. Uh, I didn't even know what Zoom was in February of 2020. So these four events, uh, is very rare to see them all happen in one time. There's only one other period that it was similar to this, and that was in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And if you look at the next chart, what you'll see is that there's a very big similarity today to what was going on in the late 60s and early 70s. In fact, the GDP contraction in the U.S. was about 1.1% the first half of this year, very similar to the contraction of 1.25% that we had right at the beginning of these similar events happening in the late 60s, early 70s. You also had high inflation. You also had war. You also had an energy embargo. You also had this idea of getting rid of the Bretton Woods financial system. You actually started to see more protectionism building into the United States. And something that happened was called the Committee on Federal uh, Foreign Investment in the United States, where we did inbound investment reviews. Today, we're talking about outbound national security reviews for companies that are going to make investments outside the United States. So these 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 are the aftershocks of the transformational events that happened in 2020. And they bring much larger policy changes than we normally see in the past. If you look at the chart uh, following this, what you see is that the equity market today, uh, which is highlighted in blue, is following a very similar trajectory as we did during this period. In fact, you can take the 2022 S&P 500 
and overlay it almost perfectly with the 1974 stock market. The good news is that you got big rally uh, in stocks as you started to get inflation down. And we do believe that inflation is coming down. But there are structural issues that will need to be addressed, particularly as we go through some of these large policy changes. If we look at the, sl the next slide. What we see here is that something that we talked about at the EFG conference last year is that you usually get these big midterm election sell-offs. On average, the S&P 500 declines by about 20% in a midterm election year. And then you usually get these rallies outside the, after the midterm election. This usually happens because Fed policy gets more accommodative and fiscal policy gets more accommodative. And in fact, since the election, you've seen the Fed reduce its hawkishness. You also saw Congress pass a very large spending package um, in December, right in the lead up to Christmas. But you haven't had that big following trajectory of an equity market rally that you normally see. And I think that this is going to be one of the key themes is whether we have a recession in the U.S. in 2023. We have never had a recession in the third year of a president's term ever. And uh, if you look at the yield curves, if you look at the leading economic indicators, they're suggesting there is a good chance of a recession. And usually fiscal policy and monetary policy offsets that before it actually happens. The big question will be whether we're able to do that this time around. The reason why I say that is that if you look at the next slide, is that what happened in 2022 is that the three macro frameworks that we watch, monetary, fiscal, and geopolitics, were all upended in 2022. If we look at the next slide, monetary policy for the first time had to get inflation out of the system in 40 years. Every Federal Reserve rate increase over the last 40 years was designed to prevent inflation. Now the Fed has to get inflation out of the system. While there's a lot of talk about QT and interest rate increases, I think the most significant impact has been the collapse of money growth by the Federal Reserve. I don't know if your Fed speaker talked about that earlier this morning, but what we're seeing is that monetary policy has lagged by about a year of the actions that are being taken, and the collapse of money growth is signaling that inflation is going to come down in 2023. And the question is, how fast is it going to come down? But my sense here is that we've peaked on inflation. You'll start to see inflation coming down, and the collapse of money growth has been a significant factor in this. But now we're starting to see the side effects of that. If you look at the slide that follows this, is that you can take this money growth and you can apply it on anything. You can apply it on housing. You could put it on uh, Kathy Wood's ARC fund, but you can also put it on corporate profits. And what you see here is that money growth is a leading indicator of profits coming down. And what we know is that when profits come down, you start to see jobs get cut. And the takeaway that I want you to have from this is not me being a monetary policy expert. I know that you've had a monetary policy expert this morning, is that if you start to see employment begin to deteriorate in uh, the U.S., you will see enormous political pressure building on Jay Powell in 2023. And he has succumbed to some of that pressure previously uh, by trying to shift away from inflation being a major ma main factor and moving to unemployment. So I think this is a really big theme for 2023. If the economy softens, the Fed becomes a political target. And if we look at the next slide, I would argue that we're starting to see this already. This is just a basket of stocks that are going to start to benefit if the dollar begins to weaken. This is the US dollar and that basket relative to the S&P 500. And since October 24th, you've been seeing this move away and you're starting to see a rotation. 
So the market is beginning to anticipate a more accommodative Fed as this inflation comes down. So that's the monetary policy framework. If we look at the next chart, the fiscal policy framework is really changing. And I would argue that we're at the end of the 35-year period of free fiscal policy that we've been seeing. This is the Fed rate increases. And what you see in red there is that the Fed is now raising rates like they historically have done before the Berlin Wall came down in more of a high inflation environment. What that does is that as the Fed raises interest rates, it raises the debt servicing cost on the federal treasury or federal budget. And as a result, you are going to start to see the net interest cost on the U.S. debt explode this year. Let me give you the numbers. They're shocking. For every one-tenth of one percent that the congressional budget is underestimating the Fed funds rate, the federal government is 10 billion undercounted. Right now, we're about 300 basis points below. The congressional budget is assuming a less than 1% Fed funds rate, right? 400. So you're talking about a $300 billion net interest cost being added to the budget for 2023 and spill over a little bit to 2024. These are massive numbers. And we anticipate that what's going to happen is that the federal uh, tax revenues are going to start coming down as growth begins to slow, as the uh, stock market was down last year. And so you're going to have lower tax revenues and higher debt servicing costs. And all of a sudden, you're going to start getting higher uh, net interest costs as a percent of tax revenue. The reason this is important, if you look at the next slide, what we have found is that once you get to about 15% of your net interest costs as a percent of tax revenue, fiscal policy starts to become restrictive. And what we did in this chart is that we broke the, the net interest cost up into three different time periods. And what you see is in the first time period in the 60s and early 70s, when the net interest cost was somewhat restrictive uh, or, or was somewhat low, you had creative fiscal policy. But as that net interest cost began to rise into the 80s, you had pretty restrictive fiscal policy. And then as the Berlin Wall came down, as inflation came down, as interest rates came down, we've basically had 30 years of free fiscal policy. We can increase spending, we can cut taxes, and we had no real change in the net interest cost. That's all changing. And we think that this is going to balloon pretty quickly. Now, if we look at the next slide, why this is important is that you usually get these periods of large austerity after large spending increases. What we tried to show here is right after World War I and the Spanish flu, which was a pandemic, well, as after World War II, you've had these large restraints of fiscal policy. And you're starting to see that bake into the uh, into the forecast, but really not at the level that you saw in the past before. And if we look at the next slide, this will be compounded by the debate that we're seeing. You watched what happened with the House speakers race over the last couple of days. It really was not about Kevin McCarthy or who's going to be House speaker. It was a proxy for the debt ceiling fight. We had one major debt ceiling fight in 2011, and that fight has become less and less of a fight over the last 10 years. So there's this sort of um, uh, boy who cried wolf. Investors are like, well, this isn't really going to be an issue. They always say it's going to be an issue and it's not going to be an issue, but it's very much related to what we saw in 2011. And as those net interest costs rise, conservatives are going to demand more spending cuts. And so what I would argue here is that this is a major policy risk for the equity market as we get into the second and third quarter. And I would just point you out to the chart on the right. The red is the number of Republicans that voted for a bill. The blue 
is the number of Democrats that voted for a debt ceiling. What we have found is that if you do not have 218 Republicans voting for a debt ceiling, there's not cohesion. That's what you need to pass the House. And as long as the party is not unified, you're going to have a big fight. Why is the party not unified? Well, the conservatives are asking for about $75 billion of spending cuts. They want at least $40 billion of those spending cuts to be defense spending. And there's not really that 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 um, uh, consensus in the Republican Party for cutting defense spending in light of many of the geopolitical risks. That's why this debate's going to come to a real big head as we get into the second third and third quarter of, of next year. We look at the chart after this. And uh, I just I you know, I have a lot of experience with this. And this is sort of previewing our note for today. And that is, you know, the six major factors. The debt ceiling alone is not going to be enough to derail the equity market. But what we argue is that the process is just as important as the outcome. We expect the debt ceiling to get raised. But the debt ceiling got raised in August of 2011 and stocks went down 20 percent. The reason is that the market is going to be focused on the level of austerity that gets attached to that and whether that drives down the global growth forecast. The third big issue, which I think most people ignore, is how the Fed will be able to offset any type of fiscal policy austerity. Will this start to make the Fed more accommodative or not accommodative? I think will be the big question for whether stocks or how stocks do in this debt ceiling fight. Uh, I would also argue that there are outside factors, what's happening on earnings, what's happening outside the United States. And I think that was a big factor in 2011. Europe was a mess, earnings were coming down, and we had these other factors at the same time. But I would also note that Congress has other tools to get around the conservatives that were not utilized in 2011. And while I know that I'm speaking right before lunch, and this is a pretty heady subject, you look at the next slide, I tried to lighten up the mood here a little bit, and that is that the tool was employed is something called a discharge petition. This discharge petition was made famous by the Reese Witherspoon movie Legally Blonde 2 in 2003, where she was trying to get a bill posted on the House floor. What this bill does, what this procedure does, is it allows 218 members of Congress, Republican and Democrat, it doesn't matter. And if 218 members of Congress sign a petition, it would automatically force a vote on the House of Representatives. So if you're in a scenario where it's the debt ceiling has to get raised in three days and people are messing with the full faith and credit of the United States, I think it would be pretty easy to get 218 members to sign a petition and force a House vote, undermining the conservatives leverage for those spending cuts overall. So this is why I think there's a way out. This is a very nuclear option. It is not used very easily. It's why the movie was sort of panned because, you know, it's not something that you would do for Reese Witherspoon's dog and animal testing as they did in the movie. But it is a tool and it is something that we've been discussing uh, over the course of the weekend with members of Congress. And that's why we think the debt ceiling will wind up getting resolved. But why investors also have to remember the process will be just as important as the outcome overall. If we look at the next slide. If that wasn't enough, we're also moving to a multipolar world. And regardless of what you see happening in Ukraine or even China toning down the volume here in uh, with the United States, um, I do believe that there is a real challenge to the Western world order. This was a big theme for us last January. I think it played out even faster than we, we thought. Even if you take away the day to day, 
what you see here is that world trade has been slowing down since the global financial crisis. And what you've been seeing is that world trade flows are beginning to change. We believe that Russia has already lost in Ukraine. Uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say lost, like lost the whole military war, but they basically lost. And so the only option for Russia right now is to double down. You're starting to see that in headlines over the weekend where Putin is talking about calling up another 500,000 troops, which will be very controversial if he does it. We also expect that Putin is going to move to asymmetrical warfare, things that we haven't seen before, drones, misinformation, terrorism, other types, as his back goes up against the wall. China is interesting to us because uh, we started to see a little bit of a panic uh, in China overgrowth right ahead of the Xi versus Biden meeting. Uh, where China sent 13 people here to the United States to meet with 13 of their equivalents. When I say that, I mean the former head of the uh, Chinese army meeting with the former Joint Chiefs of Staff here. Uh, it was a pretty interesting meeting. Uh, Taiwan was only briefly talked about, uh, but it was really about economic growth. And I think China is a very much a uh, bit concerned about how fast Western companies began to move their supply chains out of China after the Russia-Ukraine war. A lot of companies got caught with fixed assets in Russia. Soon as that happened, they began to assess their risk in China if something was going to happen with Taiwan. would also say that that's going on with our clients and investors as well. And I think China's been a little bit concerned about that or trying to turn down the volume. What I think is interesting about this new Republican Congress, irrespective of the fiscal fights, is that they're really going to push Biden to get even more hawkish on China moving forward. We do expect a China commission. We do expect that you'll start to see uh, very big policy changes in the United States to begin to move to this kind of more insourcing or onshoring. And I'll just give you three examples. The first is we're now restricting chip sales to, uh, to China. It's the first time since the Berlin Wall came down that we're doing something like that. The second is that we just paid the semiconductor industry to relocate back in the United States. We think the antibiotic industry is next. And at some point, we're going to start putting national security reviews on outbound investment of U.S. companies. This is a sea change in U.S. policy that for the last 40 years has been pushing globalization, markets, go, go, sell your products. Now we're saying we don't want you to do that. We want you to locate in the United States. Not just happening in the United States. It's happening all over the world. And capital is coming home which is leading to deglobalization. If we look at the next slide, this is a chart of the price to earnings ratio of the S&P 500 over time. And my biggest takeaway here is that national security is now starting to take precedent over economic efficiency. Another way to think about this is that the very visible hand of geopolitics is now starting to replace Adam Smith's invincible hand of economic efficiency. And what I would argue is that before the Berlin Wall came down, you had higher, slightly higher inflation, 3%, slightly higher interest rates, lower PEs on stocks, and more scarcity, less abundance. The Berlin Wall came down, you began to see the world globalize, or at least the acceleration of that globalization. Interest, inflation came down, interest rates came down, PEs on stocks went up. We're probably at the beginning of reversing this. And I would argue that Trump, 2018, started this, but Biden has been far more hawkish on China 
than Trump has. In fact, the Trump staffers call us up and say, oh, my goodness, like we only wish we'd do the stuff that Biden is doing. This is where U.S. policy is going. And my sense here is that that's why maybe maybe inflation ends up at three percent rather than two percent. You're going to start to see a higher interest rate regime and you are going to start to see lower P.E.s on stocks. This idea that we're going to have massive growth stocks, I think, is probably going to be something that's going to be less important moving forward. This is not bearish or not meant to be bearish in any way. It just requires an adjustment from investors because the frameworks are changing here. And it's not just one framework. It's three frameworks. It's global. It's geopolitics. It's monetary policy. And it is fiscal policy all at the same time. They tend to interact with each other. If we look at the next slide, um, there are going to be some other key issues this year. Uh, I don't mean to minimize them, um, but you'll likely see the energy transition really take hold. Congress passed $300 billion of renewable energy incentives. Uh, I think that number is going to be twice the amount. It's not going to be $300 billion. It'll be $600 billion. But the energy transition is bullish for everything. It's bullish for fossil fuels. It's bullish for mining. And it's bullish for renewables as well. And at the same time, you're starting to see, you know, more geopolitics and the central bank accommodation. All that is beneficial for gold and other factors. The second uh, is that you're going to see the Fed focusing on climate change and banking regulation. That's something that you haven't seen. There's fewer buyers of Treasury today. The Fed is out. China's out. Saudi's probably buying less. Japan is out. Uh, why not make JP Morgan the buyer of those Treasuries uh, and make it about capital requirements? That's where I think we're going on this. The state fiscal party is beginning uh, to end uh, as well. And so, you know, there's going to be other kind of more sector based issues that are out there. Um, but I do think that the fiscal, monetary, and geopolitical will be the big ones for 2023. If I could show you my final theme of the year, and that is that the search for competency on the next slide, the search for competency is uh, building here with the presidential election. The invisible primary has already started. Uh, we're getting some key indications that President Biden is likely going to file to run for president at some point this year. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a younger upstart, the Democratic Party, tries to challenge him, very similar to Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy, but that's not guaranteed. It's just my hunch. And the party is moving away from Donald Trump on the Republican side. I would watch Governor DeSantis of Florida, but I would also keep my eye on Governor Youngkin of Virginia. I believe he's in the race, and I believe at the end of the day, he's um, a pick that uh, could satisfy all parts of the Republican Party if there's a drawdown fight. My sense is in a year from now, when, when I'm actually in person with you, uh, there will be probably six or seven Republican candidates on the stage uh, right as we're beginning the Iowa caucuses uh, for the Republican primary. And then well, we and of course, we could talk about this in detail in the questions. Uh, but finally, how are we investing around this? The policy uncertainty is going up. If we look at the next slide, what you'll see is that we continue to believe that companies need to have an aggressive government affairs program, not just here in the US, but particularly for non-US companies that invest in the US. As you know, that we've been very big on this idea that lobbying has underpriced earnings benefits. Uh, we've been able to expand this beyond just large cap. Uh, we've been able to do this with SMID cap, and we've been able to do this with non-US companies. We've wrapped this up into an ETF. We had about 10% of outperformance relative to the ACWI in 2022. 
what's interesting is that this is an asset allocation fund of large and small and non-US and US, and all three buckets outperformed their benchmarks in 2022. We think that this is going to be an emerging theme. And I think what was very interesting for us in this basket of stocks in 2022 is that it outperformed in a rising dollar environment and it outperformed in a uh, in a in a, a declining dollar environment. And it's one of the few investment products that were not completely influenced by which way the U.S. Uh, dollar was uh, was uh, moving in 2022. But clearly, from a governance perspective, companies are going to need a seat at the table. You're a semiconductor industry, and one day Biden just wants to restrict sales. It's going to meaningfully change your business model. And this is why we think that the lobbying is such a crucial impact of governance moving forward. So, Maz, I'm going to end there. Uh, I spoke for longer than I wanted to, uh, but I wanted to get everybody thinking about what these key policy issues are going to be for 2023. And hopefully we can have some questions and, and be able to dig deeper into these issues. Thank you again for having me today. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Dan. I'm just going to be... Yep, I lost I'm, sure there. That, I'm sure there's going to be a whole lot of questions uh, coming up. So for those on uh, online or uh, in the room, uh, uh, please use Slido. I'll come back to the room a bit later. So uh, the first question, um, Dan, for me is around the dollar. So in your uh, deglobalization um, scenario, which uh, I think most people in this room probably agree with, uh, given the arguments you put forward, is the dollar then, um, you know, one of the uh, asset classes that's going to suffer as a result of deglobalization, given the pressure on uh, reserves that it may bring? Great question. So, I, you know, I started off talking about my themes for last year. We got eight out of ten right. And, man, the one that I got wrong is the one that matters. And I thought the dollar was going to go down in 2022, and it didn't. And, fortunately, we were able to produce good returns in energy and other areas without that. But I think you're now at the beginning of this kind of de-dollarization that's starting to happen. If you look at what is going on in China and Russia, they're trying to build an alternative, not just to the Western world, but to the Western economic world. And I think that's key. And we've been seeing gold sales, not just in Russia and China, but we've been seeing them in India. We've been probably seeing them in Saudi Arabia through the proxies that we we look at. And China is really pushing on the Saudis at some point to start pricing oil and the Chinese currency. I think we're a long way away from that. And I don't. But directionally, you see where we're headed in this respect. And then just in the short run to your question is that deficits matter for the dollar, the trade deficit and the budget deficit as a percent of GDP over uh, the U.S. dollar is it's a two-year leading indicator, and it didn't happen last year, but it's probably going to happen this year. And so the best way to explain it is that capital is going home in every country, not just the United States. I think that's dollar negative, and um, and I do think that there's going to be some pressure on the dollar. So, you know, the alternative, though, is that this is very good for industrial stocks. It's very good for the companies that are going to build here. And it's just a long tail, though. I don't have enough people working in America today. Now I'm going to build eight semiconductor facilities. Who's going to build them? Where am I going to get the concrete from? The concrete's in Ukraine, to be honest with you, in Russia. And then once I build those factories, who's going to work in those factories? 
we don't have good answers to those questions. And that's why I don't think it's immediate, but it's directionally that's where we're headed. Thanks, uh, thanks, Dan. Should we go to Slido to see any other questions? I've got at least twenty follow-ups anyway, but if the case, That's in the great. case there isn't. Um, so let's. I don't know if you can see this. Um, I can't see it. My eyes are going. Okay. So the first question is: um, I've heard that uh, Kamala Harris' speech speeches make Biden look like an accomplished orator. Do you agree? Yeah, so let me, um, yeah, let me, let me, let me just say that. Um, so Biden has just turned 80 years old. Biden had a really good midterm election. Most presidents get wiped out in a midterm election. The president's approval rating was 42%. Normally he would lose 48, 49 seats on that. Uh, we were anticipating that the Democrats would lose 25 to 30 House seats. And he lost like 12 uh, or 10. Uh, I mean, it was I mean, it was a, such a defiance of history. We haven't seen anything like that in 100 years. So Biden has a little bit of a renewed momentum for being able to say that he can run for president. There are a lot of Democrats who did not want him to run for president. And then the midterm election happened and said, well, you know what? He's giving us everything he wants and he's not losing the Republicans. Maybe he should stay in. The reason I'm giving you this whole big, long windup in response to this question is if I'm Joe Biden, I don't want to pretend like I'm not running for president. How am I going to negotiate a Russia-Ukraine ceasefire? How am I going to deal with J.J. Ping if I'm a lame duck president? So at the very least, the president is going to pretend like he's running for president. I think he's a lot more serious today than he was three months ago about running for president. But let's say we get to the summertime and he's not going to run for president. Kamala Harris is the first in line to be a Democrat who's going to run for president. And her performance here in America has not been that great. She just hasn't been able to get her um, hasn't been able to get her footing, so to speak. And that's made her vulnerable to a possible primary challenge, particularly from a Democratic governor, if she is going to be able to run. But I would note that she is getting better by the day because they have her in extensive training to try and get her back up to a level that would be consistent with the highest level. And and I say that as somebody who, you know, would equally say the same thing about George W. Bush uh, or, you know, Trump. Everybody has their own issues with public speaking. And I think we've gotten used to Obama, who was a great orator. And now we judge everybody by that. That's a pretty tough standard to have. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure how we rate Trump on that, on that score. <laughs> exactly, right. Exactly. Um, the next question, I guess, um, one of the points you made, um, and in fact, it's a point that we've made at EFG for the last four or five years, is, is this concept of a tripolar or multipolar yep. uh, world. Um, and I, certainly in your presentation, you implied that it meant that there will be sort of higher inflation, possibly lower growth, because... Of course, um, uh, international trade flows are very positive for growth. Um, but it sounds as though you're, you're a little bit downbeat on this. Again, I'm an analyst, so I'm just trying to figure out what's happening. Uh, but listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying that American policymakers are creating less growth in America. I never thought I'd ever say that in my career. Most investors 
and the amongst our global clients started in the late 90s or early 2000s. So they only know one type of environment, and that is a globalizing world with low interest rates and low inflation. But what happens is once you start to put up barriers to growth, you're going to get less growth and you're going to get higher inflation because you're prioritizing national security over economic efficiency. That, that's the key issue right there. Now, think about this. In 1994, after the Berlin Wall went down, CPI in the United States was like 2.6 in April of 94. And Alan Greenspan was like, nope, I'm going, I'm going to raise interest rates 75 bips to get inflation down to 2%. And he could do that in that world. If we get to 2.6% in a year from now, do we think Jay Powell's raising by 75 bips? No way! It would be the biggest party at the Federal Reserve building we've ever seen if they get to 2.6 in a year from now, right? Like, what, what the Fed was telling us a few months ago was, if they get to 3.5 by the end of 2023, they're going to declare victory, right? I don't... I don't know if that's what your Fed speaker was speaking about before, but, you know, you're in this environment where you can end up somewhere between three and three, five and stay there for a couple of years, which is why they're talking about keeping interest rates higher. But it's not the end of the world. Like we had that in the 80s and the 80s were pretty good. OK, but it's just different. It's different which sectors are going to benefit. It's different for how you're going to invest in stocks relative to bonds. It's different in how you're going to look at U.S. versus non-U.S. allocations. That's what I think is the implication from all this. And it requires an adjustment. Now, I can be totally wrong. Money growth is collapsing and we're right back into a 2% regime inflation, 2% regime and everybody's getting along again. But the genie's out of the bottle here. Like China believes that the Western world's doing everything wrong. Putin believes that we're using our reserve currency to fight wars and encroach on him. There's going to be pushback from that. If a country believes that their existential threat is facing them, they're going to act. That's what we're seeing right now. And that's not something that gets unwinded in one year or two years. I, I would argue that this might sound like a side point, but it's a good one, is that we're having a similar problem of crime in New York, which it feels like 1988, 1989, 1990 in New York, if you just walk around New York. And it just it doesn't get solved in a year. It takes multi years to do. And that's where I think we're at in global affairs and politics and policy. And that's why I think investors need to adjust to this. This is a longer term trend um, and uh, and one that's going to be slower growth and less uh, more, slower growth and more inflation. Mm. Yeah, very, very, very interesting uh, comments. Certainly does mean that uh, we'll need to look at those investments in a, in a, in a very different light as, as we would have done in the 80s. Um, uh, junk bonds kind of were born in that period, so it'd be quite interesting yes. to see what happens. That's right. <laughs> it reminds me of, what was it, Michael Milken and various Michael other people. Michael Milken. <laughs> a lot of, of Milken's former staff, the good guys, are clients of ours because there were all these kind of spinoffs. And these are the concepts that they talked to us about when we're in, in there. That doesn't mean the junk bomb, but, but these are people who are investing in 83, 84. Absolutely. Very, very interesting. So next question is um, whether the China and Taiwan tensions are going to be uh, perpetual. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I do. Uh, I do. And, and, you know, long before any of this, you know, it's, if you just look at kind of trends that are out there, directionally, this is where we were going. 
And um, I think the U.S. military two years ago was planning for some event in the South China Sea in 2024. That doesn't mean that it was a forecast, but it was a planning exercise to be ready for that. Uh, as you might remember, in May of this year, Nancy Pelosi decided to go to Taiwan. And um, there was a very big event that emerged from that. And that is that China was able to put a naval blockade around Taiwan, which the U.S. military planners have made clear that they didn't think that China had the capability to do that yet. And so after Pelosi left Taiwan, what you saw was an acceleration amongst U.S. policymakers about when this event could take place, uh, when Taiwan could be seated. Now, I, I just want to give you why it becomes kinetic in that sense, because if you believe that China could put a blockade around Taiwan, the way that you're sending arms to Ukraine is not the same way that you could send arms to Taiwan. You actually have to get the arms into Taiwan ahead of time so that uh, you can get them in there because the blockade would prevent you from doing that. So now you're seeing an acceleration of the United States trying to figure out how to get arms in there. So you have a chicken or egg problem. Like everybody is kind of changing their behavior now that you've seen it. And that's what's creating some of this, this risk. I, I do want to be clear, though, is that we've seen some cooling of tensions over the last eight weeks between China and U.S. And I, I don't want to downplay that. Like there's sort of like, OK, let's kind of calm down here. Let's see. I, and what I think China's trying to do is hold on to the Western world economically as long as they can before you get that split. And that's that's still a couple of years away. But directionally, that's where we're headed. And what I always say to myself is who's going to be the next president of the United States? And is that next president going to have a hawkish or more dovish policy to China? And my guess is it's going to be a more hawkish, depending on who that's going to be. It's not turning around in that sense. So that's a big point. And then finally, just on the whole, you know, kind of porcupining this, I would watch Crimea, uh, which has nothing to do with Taiwan. But it feels as if Ukraine is headed closer and closer to Crimea. If you have an event where, uh, you know, the, the Ukrainians are able to retake Crimea, I would put at 15% probability, but low probability, that's going to be a shockwave around the world, given the strategic importance that Putin has placed on that and how powerful these U.S. weapons are that are being sent into Ukraine. I think everybody will do a reevaluation about what is capable, uh, very different Taiwan than Ukraine, but something to think about given Crimea was taken in 2014. Very, uh, very, very interesting uh, comments. Um, I'm just going to go around the room here, see if anyone has any. You want to put your hand up if you've got a question? Just Michael there. Thanks, Dan. Very insightful as always. Um, just one area on the sort of Chinese uh, US stuff. Where do you see Europe fitting in and how do you see US European relations in that context, given, I guess, what you're talking about is more insulation from the US in terms of economically, but you also see people like Olaf Scholz going to China. So I'm just wondering how you see that sort of playing out with Europe in the middle. Awesome question, Michael. Awesome question. So let me let me start off by saying that um, I used to meet with the European Union every month before COVID. Uh, this is during the Trump administration. And, um, you know, I would always say to them, when are you going to when are you going to uh, pull the rug out from the United States so that you could sell more Airbuses as we put Boeing on there, right? So there's always going to be that tripolar 
as Maz referred to before, and that kind of going back and forth. Um, I, I would note, however, um, is that when you look at the way these alliances are, are matching up, is that um, uh, China is aligned with Putin, regardless of what whatever is being said there. Uh, they stood up at the Olympics and said, like, we're challenging the world order and the world order is part of Europe. So we've been seeing Europe shifting and becoming more hawkish on China. Uh, that's different than, you know, the German chancellor going to meet with JJ Ping and seeing if there's points of cooperation. So I do think that there will be some back and forth. But as long as you're aligned with Russia, uh, I think that's going to feel the air of uh, of the European Union. And there's a sense here that that's that that relationship is there. And uh, it's something just to keep in mind. But you also have U.S. EU tensions. We passed the Inflation Reduction Act in August that would prioritize very uh, renewable energies having to be built here in the United States to qualify for the tax credit. And it's been clear that that could have a negative impact on Europe's economic uh, development and their business model. And uh, they're already getting hit with high energy prices. Those high energy prices are being charged by U.S. companies shipping natural gas in there. So there will always be this kind of tripolar. But ultimately, uh, given the nature of the size of the coalitions, it's more of a two-polar fight than a three-polar fight. And uh, the EU will probably be more aligned with the U.S. than with China moving forward. Just a quick uh, side question I have, uh, Dan, on uh, on the storming of uh, of the Brazilian uh, Congress over the over the weekend. Um, any any thoughts on that? Um, just uh, just uh, just just the interest of some of my LATAM colleagues are here. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm, I'm not an expert on Brazil politics and try not to comment too much on it, but just think about what I showed you at the beginning of this presentation. And that is that global and U.S. GDP has shifted from a 3% to a 2% growth rate, largely stayed there. And now the issues are becoming cultural. And so the presentation I gave at your conference right before the pandemic was that we're moving into four political parties, right? I don't know if you remember that. Like, we have four political parties in the United States. That's what's happening globally, I think, as well. And um, and as growth goes down, as cultural issues start to remain, and it's creating a very deep level of political volatility. Um, and, and and it will be, and, and again, if you're China, you're like, look at that, that system's broken. We're gonna give you a better system, right? So it's feeding the autocrats in terms of saying that their, their system is superior in bringing in developing economies and developing countries to their coalition overall. But, you know, my sense here is that this isn't going away until growth comes back. Um, you are going to see this deep political volatility. And I, I got to tell you, uh, the fight in the House of Representatives on Friday uh, is a, a response to that. And I just think that this is getting echoed everywhere. Uh, last question here, Gianluigi. Uh, hi. Sorry. Uh, you mentioned among the, the themes of, you know, the, the weakness of the dollar ahead. Uh, how do you uh, see this playing in the forex market, also to, uh, all geopolitical factors you, you mentioned, and of course the role of uh, the euro and, uh, and the yuan in that uh, context? Thank you. You know, we've been noticing, uh, I'll just give you a side point. We used to just take the dollar and put oil on it, and, um, you know, you have a basket of currencies, 
and it worked and that no longer works because now we could just take the dollar put it next to the wand and um, that's telling us what oil is doing so it's telling you that china already has a greater role in the forex market and it's displacing some of the us and some of the eu so you're getting a more diverse forex market overall that's number one number two is that you had a really hawkish fed relative to other central banks now the fed is starting to lay off a little bit and other central banks remain very hawkish so the risk reward of that has sort of balanced itself out and i think it's really interesting to watch gold gold is really starting to break out here and um, i think there's a lot of messages in that it's the geopolitics it's the central banks it's the political pressure that could be coming on the central banks gold is a leading indicator of inflation when we had inflation people said why isn't gold working it already told you that we were going to get that inflation now it's starting to re-emerge again so that's a second portion of it and then third what is so fascinating to me is that i can take u.s defense stocks which we have been very bullish on we're starting to get a little bit more cautious here but we can take U.S. defense stocks and we can put them right on the Chinese currency. It's the same chart for five years. And you say, well, what's the relationship there? Well, if China's going to reopen, that's going to have a huge impact on the dollar, on the economies and where your asset allocation is. And I just see that these 100% U.S. companies or 90% U.S. revenue companies, which have been great winners in 2022, are not going to be as big winners in 2023. And that's going to be a functioning of the dollar starting to ease and more U.S. multinationals losing that headwind and starting to gain a little bit of a tailwind as the dollar begins to come down. But there is a move globally away from the dollar. Capital is going to go where it's treated best. And we're going to have a more diversified dollar-based dollar system. It's a long tail, but we're at the beginning of that process is my best case. Well, Dan, um, with that, just want to again thank you very much for taking the time uh, to present to, to us. Uh, fascinating as always. I certainly um, will probably go back to the replay just to let you know, everybody, that there is a replay on this uh, on Great. the website. So you can go back and listen to it. But certainly uh, a lot to take in. I said, I will definitely be doing it again, going through it again, because uh, there's major implications to, to what you said today. So, again, thank you very much. And, of course, good luck at your conference uh, Great. tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of your conference. I look forward to seeing everybody. Thank you. So I hope you uh, enjoyed uh, Dan's uh, presentation. Of course, if you have any questions or you want to delve in a little bit further, or even indeed if you want to uh, listen into the full conference, uh, please do reach out to us and we can certainly give you access. So with that, thank you very much and speak to you again next week.